言论自由。Hi, I'm Katie Engelhart, and I'm Brian Pellet. Welcome to the final episode of On Free Speech, our monthly podcast from FreeSpeechDebate.com. Here's the rundown for this episode. We'll kick off by hearing from inventor of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, on what happens when government and business get cozy online. Later in the show, we'll talk to David Kirkpatrick, author of The Facebook Effect, on whether Facebook will make it into China. Stay tuned to find out more. You'll hear our interview with Martin Pauly, a sports historian and also a consultant to the Olympics exhibition, which is on right now at the Free Word Center in London, and from Danny Lynch from Kick It Out, a campaign against racism and homophobia in football. In keeping with our theme this month, we'll speak to FSD online editor Miriam Omidi about racist sports fans on Twitter. But first, here's Tim Berners-Lee. According to the World Wide Web inventor, one of the biggest threats to internet freedom is rooted in the nexus between private and public powers. You end up with a telecom monopoly, which is a monopoly allowed by government, which has very strong connections with the government. So that when the government wants to disconnect the country from the internet, it actually knows who to go to, and they、uh, and they know how to do it. We saw this happen in January 2011, when the then fragile government of Hosni Mubarak ordered the shutdown of the country's internet. One of Berners-Lee's more playful ideas is that of creating stretch friendships between internet users. His idea is to assign individuals friends from completely different online social circles. Such friendships, he thinks, would help break down cultural barriers that still exist online. So a stretch friend is, you know, the system could throw up every now and again, say, "Well, Timothy, now you've talked to all these people to make these to make these interviews, and that's all very well, but now I want you to go and interview somebody who's not online at all, just isn't in your book." Now here's Katie's interview with sports historian Martin Pauly. So I understand that he will be participating in a panel discussion at the Free Word Center with the title "In a League of Its Own: Is Sport Above Human Rights?" I was hoping you could start by sort of putting this question in in historical context: Is sport above human rights? Well, well, for many many years, most people involved with sport have wanted to keep it separate from anything political. There's a very strong tradition, particularly in the UK and other liberal democratic societies. Of viewing sport as something voluntary that people take part in because they want to. Now, as a historian, I have a great problem with this because I think that as soon as you start putting national colours on things, as soon as you start organising sport around the idea of the nation state, then you are making some kind of a political statement. During the interwar period, though, a lot of people involved with sport realised that some governments were using sport to promote a particular image of themselves, which maybe wasn't the whole story. And the classic one, of course, is Berlin in 1936. The、uh, German government used the Olympics, which were awarded to Berlin before the Nazis came to power, as a way of advertising their strength and their solidity and their efficiency. What that obviously hid from public view was some of the other abuses that were going on within Germany. And what was interesting is that moments like that that made people in the UK, people in France and Spain, Spain actually boycotted the Berlin Olympics, begin to ask questions and say, "Well, no, surely if we want sport to be something that promotes goodwill, that promotes unity." Then maybe we shouldn't be playing against countries where there are human rights abuses going on. In 1894, Pierre de Beltin, the founder of the International Olympic Committee, announced 
The reestablishment of the Olympic Games would bring together, every four years, representatives of the nations of the world, and one is permitted to think that these peaceful, courteous contests constitute the best form of internationalism. Do you think historically this commitment to internationalism has created additional pressure to keep the Games apolitical, potentially at the expense mm. of free speech protection? Mm, absolutely. Very quickly before that, it's crucial to put that in context, his form of internationalism didn't include women, for example. I think what they did by having that as the idea, which has then become enshrined almost as a kind of parallel religion within Olympism, is that you're absolutely right. It attempts to put the Olympic Games above politics. Along the way, I think they've done an enormous amount of good work. And I think the best example is maybe the exclusion of South Africa during the apartheid period. Now, what I think is interesting is that we've got a historical precedent of the IOC throwing somebody out because they didn't fit with the charter. And yet this year, Saudi Arabia has said that it will be sending a male-only team to the Olympics, and yet the IOC aren't taking any action against them. But, you know, if you bear in mind that the um, values of Olympism, the fundamental principles of Olympism include the phrase, any form of discrimination with regard to a country or a person on grounds of race, religion, politics, gender or otherwise, is incompatible with belonging to the Olympic movement. So I think it's fascinating that the guts they had in chucking South Africa out in the pre-commercial period are not being followed through now that the Olympics are so commercial with in relation to Saudi Arabia. Well, that's interesting because I can imagine by extension a situation where people might want to show up at these Olympic Games and, and protest mm -hmm. the International Olympic Committee's decision. However, the controversial Olympic Charter Rule 51 bans such demonstrations. I'm wondering, have we seen historically many instances where protests have been put down or relocated away from Olympic grounds? Yeah, I think, first off, let's look, concentrate on the violent protests that have caused death. Obviously, the, the Black uh, September Palestinian splinter group who broke into the Olympic Village in Munich in 1972, murdered some of the Israeli competitors, kidnapped some, and the whole thing ended up in an atrocious bloodbath with 11 Israelis dead. Looking another way, uh, let's go back to Mexico City 1968, when um, in the build-up to the Olympics there were a lot of student protests focusing on the lack of freedom within Mexico, the military dictatorship, and they were using the Olympics as a, a platform, if you like, and so they protested and one of the protests led to, led to the government opening fire with many casualties. So I think it's important to remember those as, as precedents, as contexts for anything we talk about free speech for this year. What we've seen more recently, I think, particularly around Beijing in 2008, is the idea of tolerated protest. So the organisers setting up protest zones, almost like a kind of high Park Corner model, where people can come along and express their views. But even in the context of the 2012 London mm. Olympics, there are concerns about free speech violations. Most recently, Cory Doctorow wrote an article in Boeing Boeing referring to a dystopian regime of policing and censorship on behalf of the game's sponsors. And he was referring to the London 2012 mm. Olympics. People are concerned about the willingness of London officials mm. to move protests away from Olympic sites. Do you see that as a violation of free speech? Absolutely. And I, th I think my context here is if we go back to Olympic Charter Rule 51, which obviously bars political, religious or racial propaganda, all the bylaws to that, that's number three, but then there are um, you know, a whole number of bylaws all of which are about protecting sponsors' rights. So it's crucial to see that even within the IOC mentality, political, racial or religious propaganda is almost 
Not quite, but almost a footnote to the protection of sponsors' brands, because they're the ones paying. On the other hand, it seems to me that some of the concern might be overstated. For example, there's been uh, a lot of attention on a Twitter account known as, I think it's called Space 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 Hijackers. Space Hijackers, I believe, is a group of Mm anti-corporatist activists who, who call themselves the official opposition to the Olympic Games. Their Twitter account was recently pulled. But Twitter, in pulling the account, cited copyright infringement. The group had doctored the Olympic symbol yes. as its background. I mean, that seems that seems a sort of a fair... Absolutely. Um, yeah, a lot of the Olympic Act obviously insurance copyright and intellectual rights and so on. I think what the space hijackers were saying, why they drew attention to this, is that they were clearly not trying to make any commercial gain. They weren't trying to make any money out of their satirical rewrite of the Olympic logo. But I think it's um, interesting that they, they've chosen that rather than what obviously the term is the real issue. They don't want people making a fuss about the Olympics. So you've described this sort of tension between corporate rights mm. and individual free speech mm. rights. Has that tension existed historically or is it a more modern development? It, it's, it's a relatively modern development. Up until the 1980s, the Olympics were relatively uncommercial. There were plenty of examples of small-scale what we would call sponsorship. What changed in the 1980s was the Olympics began to run out of money in the 70s, political crises, political boycotts, and they realised that they needed to start getting more than just ticket sales to come in. So the IOC started two things really. One is they started charging significant sums for broadcasting rights. And secondly, they started getting far more commercial and setting up exclusive contracts with what they call partners. And then rather than have those brands like Coca-Cola or McDonald's appearing within the Olympic Stadium or in a venue or on shirt fronts, instead they sell the rings to go onto the Coke cans on McDonald's packaging. And without it, let's be absolutely straightforward, the IOC are clear on this, the games wouldn't happen. All right, sort of as a final question, I'm wondering if there are any particular historical examples that come to mind where the games have been used as a venue for effective protest. As far as the Olympics goes, a big one was 1976 in Montreal when most black African nations arrived, signed up, but then walked out. South Africa weren't there, but New Zealand were, and New Zealand was still playing rugby with South Africa. So it was a black African protest in Montreal. And I think things like that, alongside the cricket boycotts and everything else, did help to maintain pressure on South Africa to change. Another interesting one is maybe in 2000, when Cathy Freeman in Sydney used both the Australian flag, but also the Aboriginal flag as part of her identity when she'd won. And technically, the Aboriginal flag wasn't recognised by the IOC. They only recognised nation states, but they let her get away with it. And I think there's a a growing recognition, again, still a long way to go, but a growing recognition that first person's rights aren't always the same as the nation states. Sure. Well, that was it for my questions. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think what's fascinating is to then look at ambush marketing, which does happen on a big scale with rival brands trying to get their colours or their logo noticed near the grounds. But it's also happened this year with a lot of small businesses in the Stratford area renaming themselves Olympic. So there was there's the Olympic Kebab Shop, there was Olympic Taxis, there was Olympic Skip Hire. And I think so far the Lowcox lawyers have visited about 20 small businesses telling them not to do it. Some seem to be ignoring it. Others have changed their name by simply dropping the letter O. So we now have the Olympic restaurant. I think it's the Olympic Cafe. So I must admit, even though I recognise that this is, you know, a copyright infringement, I must admire the guts and the nerve of the small businessmen and women who are doing this. Last month, we met with David Kirkpatrick, author of The Facebook Effect. 
Kirkpatrick, who is by his own admission a huge fan of the social network, believes privacy concerns have been overhyped. I actually think that the much ballyhooed concerns and even revolts about privacy on Facebook have primarily been the province of a very small subset of Facebook users, typically elites who are journalists, activists, government officials, etc. Kirkpatrick adds that privacy is even less of a concern for those in the developing world, where the internet's empowerment benefits outweigh personal security concerns. But that's not all. For Kirkpatrick, Facebook is returning users to an earlier era of humankind, a time when we all lived in small communities and everybody knew everybody's business. Just in the last couple of years, the majority of mankind for the first time is living in cities. And I find it really interesting that at that exact same moment, Facebook is the most popular software of the era. And what Facebook does is, in effect, recreates that over-the-backyard-fence intimacy of the village and small town. So, will Facebook go into China? Well, according to Kirkpatrick, it wants to. And it may even consider handing over information about Chinese users in order to get a foothold there. But see, they have a big PR problem if they do that, because um, there will be a huge user backlash and government and activist backlash in the rest of the world if they exceed, you know, and compromise with Chinese authorities. Next up, we have Marion's interview with Danny Lynch from Kick It Out. Welcome, Danny. Hello. So there's been a lot about racism in football in the news over the past few weeks because of Euro 2012. Already Croatia has been fined for its racist banners and UEFA are investigating allegations of racism by fans in matches between Spain and Italy and Russia and the Czech Republic. Are we going through a particularly bad time in terms of racism and football? Uh, How does this compare to previous years? Uh, I think it's certainly a wake-up call for people who thought we had the problem licked in England. I think if you look back to the 1970s, the 1980s the problem was particularly bad to the point where in this country we had our black players being abused you know weekly bananas thrown monkey chants and so on and so forth so it was a very difficult time for those players we need to keep that in context when we look at some of the issues now the issues that you're talking about are actually overseas the domestic issues that we have are a few and far between but there is racism in the UK as well. Only last year, John Terry got accused of racism and another footballer was fined. Is that correct? Correct. Can you talk correct. a little bit about L- yes, that? Yes, of course. Yeah, well, they were two very high-profile incidents. John Terry is Chelsea captain. He was accused of racially abusing another footballer. That is uh, a court date pending, and he's going to have his day in court, and then we can see what conclusion they come to. The Luis Suarez case. Luis Suarez is a Liverpool player and he was accused of uh, racially abusing uh, a Manchester United player, Patrice Evra. Um, and they were, they were two very high-profile incidents. Uh, but I think for us at Kick It Out, the problem that we have, the issues that we face daily, is the grassroots problem. Because we're a reporting bureau, so we get emails and phone calls from people at Sunday league pitches and parks. You know, football very, very low down the pyramid, where racism seems to be uh, an issue that goes unchecked sometimes and the language that's used uh, simply isn't acceptable. Those are the cases that don't get the profile that John Terry and Luis Suarez would get. Now football is a very emotional game, mocking chants um, of what fans do. Where do we draw the line between 
chants that are simply sort of mocking and, you know, chants that are racist or homophobic? Well, I think the, the singing and the banter and the chants is all part of the dynamic of football. And you're right, it's, it's this, where do we draw the line? What does, when does banter become something more than that? And I think we hear uh, a kick out of distasteful chanting and all sorts of unacceptable things and offensive things but I think for us when you begin to abuse or mock someone as you say based on skin colour, religion, sex, nationality, faith that can be quickly identified. And do you think that racism in football is a reflection of racism in society and by that I mean are people just getting caught up in the heat of the moment are people exhibiting a crowd mentality? Is it a reflection of racism in society? I think it is, yeah, to a certain degree it is. But actually, society has softened so much since 1993, which is the year that we started, in terms of racial harmony, cohesion, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the, the concern for, for groups like ourselves is that when we have periods of economic and employment difficulty, you'll see people go to the football and the concerns that they have sometimes, you know, manifest themselves on a Saturday afternoon when they're playing football, uh, when they're watching the football, should I say. I was talking to someone in Scotland and they coined the term the 90-minute bigot and they were referring to the person who is goes about his working day without any issues at all. When it comes to football, they find that that's the platform to vent their spleen. So let's move on to homophobia in football now. How much of a problem is homophobia in football and how easy is it for a footballer to come out as gay? The problem with homophobia, I think, is well documented. That manifests itself in songs, chanting from supporters. Uh, we've seen players using homophobic language in the past. There are two out gay footballers in the world, one in Sweden, one in Canada. When, when they came out, how was that received? Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was received very well. I, I think in England, People, when people talk about homophobic football, they think of Justin Fashioner. Yeah. And can you just... Of course, know, yeah, Justin Fashioner was the first openly gay footballer. First and last. First <laughs> and last. First and last, yeah. yeah. Um, 1989 it was. And he was, a, he was a black footballer as well. So if you, if you think back to the era when he came out, racism was a regular thing. But, I mean, I think that the issue with, uh, with gay footballers is, is something that's been identified... I would say only in the past few years. It's it's really about the language, you know. It's it's really about some of the words that, that football fans would say without really thinking about it, and how that has an effect on either footballers or fans who are gay who want to watch football as well. And I think historically, footballers hasn't really been a particularly welcoming place to the gay community. But let me ask you a question: yeah, Do you sure. think there are gay footballers yeah. out there who are too scared to come? Out? I think there are. I think there are. We we we've been made aware of that particular situation. Is it fans or is it fear to come out because of the reaction from fellow footballers? I think I think it's a combination of, of different things, Mariam, to be honest with you. I think fellow players, fans, managers, commercial interests. As a footballer, you only get about a 10, 12, 15-year lifespan. You know, and I think in that time the economic reality is I need to make money because when I finish football, what am I going to do? Danny Lynch, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Following the interview, Mariam and Brian sat down to talk more about what happens when sports, racism and Twitter collide. Hi, Mariam. Hi, Brian. So go ahead and tell us about the case. Sure. 
So the case is about Liam Stacey, a 21-year-old student who was sentenced to 56 days in jail for posting racially offensive tweets. The remarks were directed at Fabrice Mwamba, a Bolton Wanderers football player who collapsed during a match after suffering from a cardiac arrest. Just to give you a taste of the kind of language he was using, because obviously that's crucial to deciding whether you agree with the sentence or not, he used the word cunt, he used the word nigger, and he used the word wog. All quite horrible and vile words. So at first Liam Stacey said his account had been hacked, and then he told police that he'd been drunk while tweeting. He was eventually charged with a racially aggravated offence under Section 4A of the Public Order Act 1986. An offence is racially aggravated if it causes intentional harassment, alarm or distress. So do you think 56 days, was that too much? And also, what about the guidelines under which he was charged, the Public Order Act? I think 56 days was way too much. I mean, a jail sentence for posting racist tweets just seems hugely, hugely excessive, in my opinion. And I think there are two reasons for that. The the first reason is because Fabrice Mwamba's collapse really captured the heart of um, a nation. There he was, a 23-year-old footballer fighting for his life. Uh, There were so many news reports chronicling every moment of his collapse and recovery, and it's hard not to think that maybe that had an effect on the sentencing. And also, this this is sort of one of the first cases in which someone was being prosecuted for racist tweets, and I do think that maybe the judge was making uh, an example of him. Another reason, possibly, and I'm going to quote here Thomas Hammerberg, who's the Council of Europe's Commissioner for Human Rights, who um, said in The Guardian that the sentence imposed by British courts was excessive. Now, he said, and I'm quoting him here, it was too much, he shouldn't have gone to prison, to put him in prison was wrong. Politicians, and this is the crucial bit, politicians are at a bit of a loss to know how to protect internet freedom while also having regulations against such problems as hate speech and child pornography. And I really do think the authorities are really figuring this stuff out. They don't really know how they should be prosecuting or dealing with people who are racist online and how that sort of differs or uh, to uh, being racist offline. So you say 56 days was obviously too much, but a more crucial question is, should this have even been a crime in the first place? We're here at freespeechdebate.com talking about free speech issues, and who is it to make that decision? Well, I think in this case, he could have been prosecuted for making those comments in a public space, again, under Section 4A of the Public Order Act 1986. So in that sense, I do think that the same laws should apply uh, online to offline. But I think what's really interesting to sort of think about is the difference between the two spheres, because had he made these comments in a pub, it would have been to a finite number of of individuals and they wouldn't have had any permanence. Whereas when you're making these comments on Twitter, you just have no idea how quickly they may spread or how many people may be reading them. And also they do have permanence. But I, And I think this is something that people aren't really thinking about. I doubt very much that Liam Stacey was thinking that when he was posting those comments that he would then end up with a jail sentence. And so I think this is something that people need to, to, to think about. But he deleted the comments immediately. I mean, he, in a sense, deleted the permanence of those tweets. He could have said the same thing in a pub. Someone could have recorded him. And then would that have led to the same 
Absolutely. Ruin, or were they making a point of him because this was Twitter, it's this new medium, we've got super injunctions, how do we deal with this is what they're saying. So thinking. you're right that he deleted the comments, but by that point, people had already saved them. So you can still find the comments on the internet, on YouTube, and there's still a record elsewhere, even though he deleted them. And you're right, someone could have recorded him in a pub, but again, unless that person posted on the internet, then it's not going to have the same reach as if he just kept the recording and shared it uh, among friends or a, a sort of a sort of smaller number of, of people. Okay, put your free speech hat on, editor of freespeechdebate.com. Should this be, should this kind of speech be criminal? In a word, no. Why? Because I strongly think that while words uh, such as the ones he used can be really vile, I also think when you really kind of assess the damage that that was done, he was not inciting violence. He was on Twitter. It's offensive, but at the same time, what was the actual damage caused to Fabrice Mwamba at who the remarks were directed? All right, thanks for chatting with us, Miriam. Brian, what's this month's free speech indicator? 187. That's the number of removal requests Google received from the United States between July and December 2011. That's up about 100% from the preceding six months. On a lighter note, Google refused to comply with a request from the Canadian Passport Office to remove a YouTube video of a Canadian citizen urinating on his passport and then flushing it down the toilet. Well, that's it for the On Free Speech podcast, but keep visiting us online at freespeechdebate.com for more discussion, interviews, and case studies. As always, you can tweet us at On Free Speech or write on our wall at facebook.com slash freespeechdebate. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bis Adios. Auf Wiederhören. On Free Speech was produced by your host and FSD online editor, Mariam Omidi.